Second Samuel chapter 7 is a great chapter. I hope that you all enjoy it uh, as I have been, as I've been reading through it and seeing how God moves uh, on behalf of his people. Still today, I believe, and uh, it certainly is a beautiful case with regard to David and his relationship with the Lord. It must have been a very, very uh, powerful experience for David as we uh, open the pages of this portion of scripture. We're going to find that David has been now in Jerusalem for quite a while. His house has been built. He's settled in. Um, he brought the Ark of the Covenant from its uh, previous place of uh, temporary uh, position in Kirjath Gilead and brought it into Jerusalem, set up a tabernacle, a tent, basically a place that could be covered uh, but not really housed. And so this chapter is all about David's desire. The greatest desire of David's heart was to worship the Lord in his temple. We found that in several of the Psalms, and um, if you've read any of the Psalms recently of David, you find that he was a true worshiper of God. He was considered by himself and the rest of Israel the sweet psalmist of Israel. And uh, David loved to worship the Lord, sang praises to him, wrote many, many songs, as did others. But David's were extremely wonderful blessings to read through, to see the heart of a man who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's such an example to us, in spite of the fact that, yes, he had some really bad flaws, as most of us would have to admit, we also do as well. But uh, chapter 7 begins with this word, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king, David, was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So David is kind of lamenting the fact that he's got this beautiful home, and the Ark of the Covenant is just inside a temporary tabernacle. It always has been, by the way, ever since they were in the wilderness many, many years before this, during the days of Moses. The tabernacle was the means by which God represented himself among his people. And it was there in that tent of meeting that the Lord did meet with his people during those wilderness years. When it was brought finally into the land of Canaan and the people had settled in, it was put in Shiloh. And again, still the tabernacle was set up there, but never ever was there consideration for a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, uh, and the uh, various uh, things that were part of the tabernacle, the uh, table of uh, bread and the table of incense, a lampstand. They were all part of that tabernacle and for the most part those items were in storage the ark of the covenant was still visited once a year by the high priest as was their uh, custom since the days of moses but again it was not until much later that god chose to build the temple and it was through david really that the temple was ultimately built and here David is expressing his desire to have a temple in Jerusalem that he would build for the glory of God. 
as for his desire, he expressed it so to Nathan, his friend, the prophet of God. Interesting, have you ever had a cedar chest or anybody that you're familiar with, perhaps had maybe a generation or more before you, stored many of their clothes in cedar chests? And if you open the cedar chest, how really wonderful the smell is, at least for most people. Some people don't like it, but I think it's a wonderful, really uh, impressive and unique odor that comes from a, a uh, cedar chest. I can't imagine living in a house of cedar, but that's where David lived. And uh, it apparently was a very substantial building. Remember, it was provided for by Hiram, the king of Tyre, as we looked at in chapter 6 last time. But David is in his house, and he's again lamenting over the fact that God doesn't have a house like he has. He has just a tent to live in. Actually, it's not God that he was lamenting about, but the ark of God. Keep in mind that David knew full well that God doesn't dwell in the tents or in houses that man can build. But he's again telling Nathan his desire. And in verse 3, we find Nathan saying this. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now David was a very successful man as a king. He was really, really very well received, and he was prospering. And Nathan saw that prosperity, that uh, response of the people to David as a king, as the blessing from the Lord. And basically, Nathan was saying, look, the Lord has blessed you. Why would he not bless you in this? Go for it, David. Well, Nathan didn't do anything with regard to seeking the Lord's will in this matter. So he's not really speaking for the Lord here. He's speaking basically out of a heart of a friend who sees David as a man who is blessed by God, and surely God would honor that which David desired. And that comes to mind the idea that will God actually bless us and give us all the desires of our hearts? Well, certainly that is what the Word of God says. But it has to be conditioned with, is it God's will? So that's where Nathan really sort of erred in encouraging David to proceed with such a request without really going to the Lord. Remember, in almost every one of the times that we read recently of David's excursions against the enemies of God, he always inquired of God, should I go? And so it should have also been done here. Should I do this? Well, Nathan sort of overstepped his bounds, but he didn't really speak as the prophet by saying, thus says the Lord. He just poured out his willingness, his heart's uh, encouragement to David to do what he thought was the right thing. I find nothing wrong with that, although some would say that Nathan was mistaken in encouraging David to do so. But how many of us have tried to encourage our brothers and sisters in the Lord to do something or, or check something out because it seemed right. But then again, after having gone through that, we realized, whoops, maybe it really wasn't the Lord's will after all. That's what happens here. Verse 4 says, But it happened that night. So God didn't wait very long to uh, set the record straight. It happened that night, verse 4 says, that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says 
the Lord. Now that's a key statement. A phrase, thus says the Lord, has all the power of God's will behind it. A prophet who would say, thus says the Lord, and that which he says does not come true, is a false prophet and would have to be stoned according to Mosaic law. So Nathan is taking this very, very important message to David as he's being given here by the Lord with the encouragement that comes from that preceding statement, thus says the Lord. And this is what God tells Nathan to tell to David. First of all, he says, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children out of Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherefore, I have moved about with all the children of Israel. Have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God is presenting this in a way for Nathan to bring to David this message from God. And first of all, clearing the matter of, look, David, you desire a house. Why are you doing that? What's, what's the big deal? I've been in a tent all this time. It's not for me to have to have a glorious house that I can dwell in, David. David probably knew that, but I think God is going to, through Nathan, remind him of that. David, you're not going to need to build me a house. Why are you asking for such a thing? Although, it really was God's intent for a house to be built. And that's what he begins to unfold next. So he says in verse 8, Now therefore thus says the Lord that you should say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts a second time, this is for emphasis. God is making sure that David understands. Yes, David, I want you to know that Nathan is speaking for me, your God. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the sheepfold, David, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. You hear what David is being told by, or will be told by Nathan, David, you wanted to build me a house, but no, David, I want to bless you with a greater blessing than even you thought likely. I want to build you a house rather than you build me a house. What a great thing. God is telling David through Nathan, or will be, that he is the one who brought the nation of Israel to where they are. And he is the one who will protect them. He is the one who will provide for their every need. He said, again in verse 10, he appointed a place for the people of Israel. He planted them. One of the Psalms tells us that they were planted like a vineyard, and the vineyard spread throughout all of the region. And that was the nation of Israel. 
and that was one of the blessings that God had done on behalf of his people to make them to be established in the land. And it's interesting that he says that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Well, that didn't quite happen until recently when Israel has now been brought back into the land. And I believe that statement that Nathan will be making to David is actually not fully completely fulfilled until this present day in which we live. They're in the land. They're not going to be removed from the land ever again. Nor will the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as God tells Nathan to speak to David with regard to that truth in verse 10. So that's something we should keep in mind. Israel is indeed in the land and God will indeed preserve them and protect them from the oppression of anyone else who wants to come against them. As it had been done by many other peoples like the Philistines in particular, the Moabites and some of the others that were around Israel in that day. But it is clear that at this point in time, David is at rest and he has no enemies. So he's going to be very, very convinced, I believe, when Nathan begins to speak to him with regard to what God has here begun to speak. But this idea of God building him a house well, wait a minute, God, I don't need a house. I've already got a house now. Hiram provided all this material to build this beautiful place in which I live. David would be thinking, a house for me? Why would God want to build me a house? Well, he needs to hear the whole of what Nathan has to share. And so God is continuing here telling Nathan what to speak to David. And Nathan, however the vision came to him, is receiving this word because it's a very, very powerful word, a word that becomes a covenant for David. It's called the Davidic covenant, but not only for David, it's the covenant for the people of Israel, but not only for the people of Israel, it's a covenant that's known as the Davidic covenant that applies to all peoples who would believe in the Lord God Almighty. Verse 12 continues and says, when your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, David, you're going to die. And when you do, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So God is telling, going to tell, I should say, David through Nathan, that his dynasty will continue. His son will be born, and there were sons already born to David, but the one son who will be born to be ruler of Israel after David is being spoken of here. But then he goes on further in verse 13 and continues this word of prophecy that extends well beyond this immediate son of David who will reign after him. For it says in verse 13, he, this son that he mentioned in verse 12, shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That doesn't mean that that son of David that was spoken of, the immediate descendant of David who will take the throne after David, he's not saying that one will live forever, but his throne will endure forever. That means that David's throne, the nation of Israel, will always have a king descending from David who will be the king of Israel forever. That is not David's immediate son. That is a prophetic statement of the Messiah who is to come. 
That is why we say that this Davidic covenant that is being presented by Nathan here through the Lord, eventually spoken to David, will be a covenant that every people will be able to enjoy because it's a covenant that doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel. It's a covenant that God applies to every soul. Verse 14 says, I will be his father, referring to that one who will be seated on the throne forever, and he shall be my son. Now he goes back to the king that will follow David. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. And certainly that is the case with every one of the descendants that followed after David. They were good kings and they were bad kings. But they all did somewhat wrong things in their uh, uh, time as kings and God judged them accordingly. He says, so here I will chasten them with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But, verse 15, my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Every descendant of David was given credit for the fact that he did good things if it was indeed a good king, and did bad things if indeed he was a bad thing. But it was always a reflection of David, and David would be the basic, the basically the the uh, the scales upon which these following kings would be measured. Either they did right as their ancestor David did, or they did wrong, as their ancestor David did not do. But God judged them, whether good or bad, yet his mercy would not depart from the lineage of David. That's his promise. Now, of course, if you go to the book of Jeremiah, you see that the line of David did come to an end, and it was just before the Babylonian captivity that that took place. Why? Because God needed to judge the nation of Israel, and Israel was indeed judged by God, and the king, who was presently on the throne during Jeremiah's time, was indeed brought to Babylon, and the throne was empty for a long period of time after that. Even through the time of the 70 years of captivity, they came back into the land, there was still no descendant of David on the throne. So what was going on with that? Well, God had said that that was the judgment that would come upon the people of God because of their sin. It did not remove the promise of God to David. That promise is still in fulfillment through Christ Jesus our Lord. That set up the stage for another king to come on the throne whose name was Jesus Christ. Yet he did not take the throne when he was there in those days some 2,000 years ago. We know that. But he came into Israel, and they received him as their king, and then rejected him. And in rejecting him, his reign was postponed until these last days. And that's all part of God's plan. That is exactly as God intended. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever, he says in verse 16. Your throne shall be established forever. That promise has never, ever, ever been forgotten by God. So now, that's what God tells Nathan to tell to David. And when he tells David these things, 
David is so overwhelmed. It tells us in verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Who am I, David said. He remembers himself as just a simple shepherd, a young boy herding the flocks of his father, called by God, but yet in that calling, having to wait for so many years and being taught by God through those years the ways of a king. And David was indeed a man who was trained up by the Lord to take the throne as a leader of his people. And that time as a shepherd was a time that trained him well to be king. But he's asking God, Lord, I'm just a shepherd boy at heart. I'm just a psalmist. I play the harp. I sing songs. I have been blessed by this wonderful blessing that you have placed me on the throne that to lead this people. But I am just a man. Who am I, O God, that you should bless me so? If you were to read Psalm 8 and Psalm 144, you would see that David expressed those same wonderment in that great psalm. As a matter of fact, let's read it together. Psalm 8, as we uh, realize how overwhelmed with great joy and uh, amazement that David has in having been the recipient of such a great blessing that David has now been given at the hand of his prophet Nathan. Verse 8 says, O Lord, or rather verse 1 of chapter Psalm 8 of the Psalms, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. David the great psalmist was expressing his joy, his satisfaction, his wonderful amazement at God's provision. What is it that you have chosen me to do, Lord God? Why have you done so? What is my house that you have brought me this far, he says in verse 18 again of Second Samuel chapter 7. And yet, verse 19 says, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord. It doesn't require much effort on God's part to bless us, does it? You know, sometimes we ask for small things. Sometimes we ask for big things. But whether they're big or small in our eyes, they're nothing in God's eyes. It's never too much to ask when you ask for big things. It's never too little to ask when you ask for small things. But what you should remember is that it needs to be bathed in prayer and asked according to His will. And you seek his will by looking through his word and seeking counsel. And sometimes counsel comes, as did counsel come this time with David with respect to Nathan's 
um, first statement that he had made the night before, go ahead, David, whatever you ask for, God will bless. Well, it wasn't exactly right for Nathan to say that, and sometimes counsel can be wrong. We do need to be careful. Don't assume that when somebody says that it's God's will, that it automatically will re out become that uh, uh, for you. It's just a matter of waiting on the Lord and making sure you don't take any steps before you know for certain. And then, when we take that first step, God will lead the rest of the way. Man's mind, man's heart, plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So now David has been told, yes, David, this is what I will do for you. However, David realizes now that he isn't going to be the one to build this house. But he's still going to give God the glory. He's still giving God the praise. For he says in verse 21, For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. David is expressing his thanks for, to God for revealing what God has now revealed to David. He says in verse 22, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David is now knowing for a certainty that God is a God of Israel, and he is faithful, and he is absolutely convinced that God is with him. Even though it's not going to be he who actually builds this house he knows that God is doing something far, far better than what he had planned. But even then, God continues after this to instruct David with regard to the building of this house, which we will get to in a few minutes. But David continues in his prayer to the Lord in verse 23. And who is like your people, O like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people? to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land. Therefore, before your people to whom you ministered, you redeemed yourself from Egypt, the nations, and their gods. Lord, you brought this people into this land. You've blessed this people. You've blessed this land. David isn't only thanking God for blessing himself, but also for blessing all of the people of Israel and for blessing the land that they have all been given the privilege of inheriting. Verse 25 continues David's prayer, and he says, Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning this house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. What a remarkable prayer. That's a great prayer for us to learn of, of how to pray when we're giving thanks to God. Give him thanks for what he has done for you, what he has done for your family, what he has done for those around you, what he has done for your land, what he has done for every detail of your life. And give him thanks for it. Praise him for it as David has. And be, as David was, blessed in knowing that God hears your prayer. Or well, verse 28 continues and says, And now, O Lord God, 
You are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever, according to your word. Amen and amen. Let us agree with David in that respect. Let God's will be done, and the blessings that he has poured out on David be forever known among all the peoples everywhere. Well, before we go any further with regard to this study in Second Samuel, I want to elaborate somewhat on what was promised by God, that God would build him a house. But the temple that David had wanted to build was still going to be built. God didn't say there would be no temple. God just said, David, you would not build it. And so the next chapter is going to be part of how David is going to provide for the building of that temple which ultimately would be built by his son Solomon. David doesn't know who is going to build the house yet, but David, I believe, understands that there is going to be a place where God is going to inhabit the praises of his people. He is establishing Jerusalem as the capital of the nation. And all of the other nations have a place where their God is worshipped. David is well aware, I'm convinced, of the temple that was in Gath, the temple to their God, Dagon. And David has that desire again for a temple. We find later on in the book of First Chronicles the continuation of this desire of David. And I don't want to go into the details of that, but I want you to understand that when we get to this point where Solomon comes on the scene, David will have already gathered all of the materials necessary to build a temple that God actually gave David the blueprints for. Really, it could be called David's temple. Technically, it was David's temple. We're told in First Chronicles, it's found in chapter 28 if you wanted to read ahead, but we'll cover it eventually if we get to the Chronicles later on in our studies. But there in chapter 28 of the First Chronicles, David is said to have received the blueprints of the tabernacle, not the tabernacle, but the temple and the houses and all of the utensils and everything else related to the temple that would be built by uh, his son Solomon. David will have by that time been made aware that it will be Solomon who will be doing that building project. And David in chapter 28 and chapter 29 of First Chronicles is giving Solomon everything he needs that's why we can say it's David's temple as well as Solomon's temple. It was Solomon who built it, but it was David who gave all of the resources for the building of it. All the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, bronze, all the jewels, all of the various things that were set aside by David. He funded the vast majority of the cost of this temple construction. Chapter 8 gives us a little bit of insight as to how David accumulated the wealth in order for him to do that. Yes, he was king of Israel, but he didn't just simply accumulate the wealth through taxes. 
he accumulated great wealth through the spoils that came from the battles he won for the Lord in those early years of his kingdom. Chapter 8 recounts some seven victories of David's coming against the enemies of God. And in most cases, David is on the offensive. But we believe from the Word of God, from other portions of Scripture, that David never went on an offensive against an enemy without a reason. We're not told for the reasons that David comes against these enemies, but he does so, and he's got the Lord going before him in every case. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. This is the first time that they actually enter into Philistine territory in their attack. Every time before this, the Philistines had been attacking Israel on Israeli soil. Now David moves his armies into Philistine and attacks them. And it tells them in the latter part of verse 1, And David took Methag Amah from the hand of the Philistines. Then, in verse 2, it tells us, He defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line, with two lines he measured off, those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So two-thirds of the armies of the Moabites would be killed, and one-third would be allowed to live. That seems severe. Why would David do that? What was the reason for him to take such action against the Moabites? Remember, his great-great-grandmother was a Moabitess, Ruth. So he had already, remember, long before this, sent his own family into Moabite territory and asked the king of the Moabites to protect his father and mother and the rest of his family. Now, is it possible that the Moabites ultimately killed David's family. Jewish tradition tells us that, though there's not really any real certainty about that, but that could be possibly the reason that David took such action against the Moabites here. But in any case, he is going to take the lives of two-thirds of the Moabite army. Certainly they would never be able to attack David and his generation again because they would have been so weakened by this. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute to David at the end of verse 2. Now verse 3 tells us, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover the territory at the river Euphrates, all the way to the river Euphrates in the north of what is now Jordan and uh, parts of Iraq, probably around the area of Nineveh, the ancient city of Nineveh, near what we would call Kurdistan today. David also, in verse 4, took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. So he took 1,000 chariots and only kept 100 of the chariots for himself with 100 horses and then hamstrung the other horses so that they wouldn't be able to be used in battle. Remember in the book of Numbers, God had instructed through Moses that the king should never multiply to himself horses. David is here doing nothing like what would be done by Solomon 
who later would reign in his stead and multiply horses abundantly. David did not do that. So he's adhering to the Mosaic covenant that was given through the law. Verse 5 tells us, When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Shields of gold. Amazing. They were stored in David's house of treasures. And there were many of them. That's part, again, of the spoils of war, and that would be used in temple construction later. Verse 8 says, From Bita and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the armor of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toi, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. Look at all the wealth that David is accumulating. This time, at the hand of one who wants to befriend David, he doesn't want David to come against him. In fact, he's grateful, so grateful, that David came against this other king that he is sending a great deal of wealth David's way to enter into a relationship of peace with David. Verse 11 says, Then King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. So again, this is a financing plan that David has put into place to put together all the materials necessary for the building of this great temple that Solomon, his son, would build. Verse 12 says, and continuing what verse 11 started to say, those treasures from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David is expanding his kingdom and bringing all these neighboring nations into submission. They are vassal states under David's authority and reign, submitting themselves to him and paying him tribute, likely on a yearly basis. And that lasted throughout his reign. Great wealth is coming into Israel as a result of all of these victories. Verse 15 continues and says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Now in his latter verses, tells us a little bit about David's uh, administration. Not really all that large, but David used wisdom in organizing his kingdom around key men that he more or less could trust. And I say more or less because one of them was Joab. He wanted Joab in a position of authority, but under David's direct authority, so David could keep an eye on him, I believe. But anyway, in verse 15, that's what he tells us about the administration of David. And verse 16 tells us the individual's names, which I'll try to pronounce for you. Verse 16 says, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, 
not the King Jehoshaphat later on, but Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder. He was the one who made all of the records of the king's work. It tells us in verse 17 that Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. They were both descendants of Levi and both qualified to be high priests. David had them both serving as a high priest, one in Jerusalem and one in Shiloh, where the altar of God was. And that's where all of the yearly offerings and daily offerings and special offerings were made on the altar that was still there in Shiloh, in the tabernacle that was built by Moses. The worship of the Lord in Jerusalem was given the responsibility of Zadok, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it was his responsibility to go in once a year for the yearly sacrifice at Passover. Verse 18 tells us, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. These were foreigners who were conscripted servicemen in David's army. They were faithful to David, and they had this man, Benaiah, over them. And David's sons were chief ministers. So David had several sons, like we had seen earlier in chapter 6, that were named, several of them, and they were given authority in David's kingdom, kind of as cabinet members. They were the ones who were in charge of various aspects, chief ministers of David's kingdom. So that's where we're going to end tonight with um, this record that gives us the wonderful blessings that God has poured out on David. Victories against his enemies, the great wealth that came in as a result of those victories, and the great promise of God that God was going to build David a house. Certainly, that was a prophetic statement that was known throughout all of their days. Isaiah speaks of it. Isaiah tells us that there was going to be a king who would be born of a virgin, and he would be of the house of David. Jesus was known as the son of David. Interesting, also known as the son of man. Yes, he identified himself that way. But in many of the occurrences in the New Testament scriptures, in the gospel records, we find reference to Jesus as being recognized as the son of David. Remember the blind man who said, have mercy on me, thou son of David. And the, and the demons also referred to him as the son of David. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced the birth through her of the Messiah, he said that holy thing that would be born of you would be ruler over all of Israel and would be seated on the throne of David in fulfillment of what David had been told here in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. This chapter 7 of 2 Samuel stands out as one of the most remarkable chapters in all of the Old Testament prophetic words because it is a very, very profound and important prophetic statement with regard to the covenant that God is making with all peoples, not only with the nation of Israel, but everyone who would receive this one who would become the Messiah, the Savior of the world, are part of that Davidic covenant that is being spoken of here, and we also are partakers of in this day. 
So praise the Lord for those things and bless His holy name together as we continue. We'll find more and more about the wonderful things that God is going to do through David and for David and for David's people and for you and me as well. God bless. Grace and peace.